This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. For the best way to find out all the rental parts suitable for your bike, check out the Fit My Bike tool on renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to look back at the action from the Malaysian Grand Prix, where we saw a return to winning ways for Enea Bastianini, Pedro Acosta crowned the Moto2 World Champion, and a new winner in the Moto3 class. And after yesterday's 20-lap race, all I could hear about was how the beast is back. And uh, Neil, they must have known you were going to be back on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yes, after a, a week's absence, uh, I'm back, everybody. So get ready. I'd love to say absence makes the heart grow fonder, but uh, I can't lie to you at this stage of the morning, Neil. Adam, you probably had the most interesting experience of all of us watching the race. You were able to be distracted a little bit by underage football sitting beside the pitch with your laptop out, banging out texts. Uh, Well, that was on Sunday, Steve. Um, But yeah, I had a full weekend of boys sports. So that was, um, sorry, Saturday for football and then Sunday for basketball. So uh, yeah, such is life. But we'll be getting on the plane um, on Wednesday morning to fly to Qatar. So hoping to get some more insight and um, some knowledge from being on the ground. Yeah, hopefully you manage to find someone as well just to play centre midfield for QPR. Dave, obviously we're through the worst of the season now. We've got uh, Qatar and Valencia coming up, so at least two races that are back on your usual sleeping pattern. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, all this Mornings should just be made illegal. There's no point to them and they just shouldn't be allowed. Well, let's uh, chat about the... Let's chat about the Malaysian Grand Prix. And Neil, you were obviously our boots on the ground in Sepang. What was your rating for the Malaysian Grand Prix? <laughs> Uh, you know, decent event, um, few bright spots, decent sprint, I thought, on Saturday. Um, quite entertaining with the championship um, guys kind of on together on track. Um, but let's not try to dress it up. Sunday's race was uh, a stinker. It was terrible. Um, it was pretty boring. I think from the moment on lap five when Pekka Banyaya passed Martin definitively for third. And yeah, after that, it just got really difficult to get excited by. And I think there's a genuine feeling that uh, we've had a bit too much of a good thing in the last couple of weeks. I don't want to say start that on a, on a very negative uh, thing, but I'm going to give it a four out of ten. Ooh, four out of ten. Um, Dave, what about you? I'm going to give it... Uh, Two out of ten, uh, because because I mean the sprint was pretty good, so you know that was a, a solid seven, and the main race was one out of ten. It was absolutely miserable. Um, it had me wondering why the hell I'd woken up so early to put myself through that. <laughs> yeah, but Dave, surely like a two out of ten is a uh, some sort of cancellation of the event. I mean, that's really bottom of the barrel. It would have been better if the event had been cancelled. It would have been um, uh, a great deal, um, a great deal more interesting. Can you tell we've had uh, six races in eight weeks? By the way, by the general tone this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Twenty-two races next year, lads. It's going to be great. Well, I have to say, I had to have about four or five coffees to get through the race, and then I've also done the same this morning just to be able to review the race. So, uh, yeah, it was a very exciting one. Adam, what about you? What was your rating out of five, out of ten? I'm going to go for a five. Uh, you know. 
purely because it's a great event I and mean, it's well established it looked like it was a lot of people there finally uh during moto 3 it didn't seem the crowd was that impressive um but then by the time moto gp came around um like as neil pointed out in our chat and also with reference to 2022 the grandstand had filled uh, considerably um i think sepang is is a great track uh whether it's a great track for racing i think the jury perhaps is still deliberating on that slightly but you can't deny just the the possibilities and the variety that riders have um you know overtaking opportunities perhaps you know could be a little bit more generous with that but yeah i think um as a grand prix it was completely forgettable as like dave and neil said uh, but i will say a five and also i think the weather forecast was terrible building up to the race and it actually turned out to be okay and there wasn't much rain on track at all during any of the sessions so that was a narrow escape yeah i have to say that like i was listening to neil you were with raslan about the rnf unlock series and he was talking about in terms of the crowd build-up compared to previous years i remember the first year i went there it was just dead 2012 2013 there was no one going to the malaysian grand prix and then by about 2015 16 17 suddenly it became a massive event and for sunday's race the crowd was good. It was just that uh, they weren't really able to be treated to much of a spectacle. You had to bring up 2015, didn't you, Steve? That's only five minutes. <laughs> um, well, I tell you what, Adam, just when you look at a race like this, we've had obviously three pretty bad ratings from the three of you. Like When you think of a, an event like this, what's the big takeaway that you have from it? takeaways uh, I mean, if we're talking about sort of my moments, then they're not really too many to choose from but uh, of course Pedro Acosta we saw crowned another Moto2 world champion in Malaysia uh, I quite like Colin Bayer's win uh, I think it was a little bit surprising to be honest if he had pulled aside and let Ayuma Sasaki take victory and some more points in the championship that would have been the thing most people would have expected him to do but then the Dutchman just hurried on I think it was like 33 years since the Dutchman last won in that particular class and uh, David Alonso quite rightfully will be Moto3 Rookie of the Year um, he also had his own memorable moment of course in the race but I think Bayer's um, progress is staggering I think he's um, had an amazing season and actually we're going to get him on the Paddock Pass podcast for a talk um, in Qatar so I hope to find out a little bit more about him and uh, how he's managed to make such an impression because he's a big guy I mean he looks kind of awkward on the Moto3 bike you can't imagine he's going to be in the class for that long but uh, you know he's uh, he's been brilliant these last uh, few races yeah i watched the moto three race this morning and um i was actually surprised that fair uh actually you know he took the win ahead of sasaki because sasaki really does need the points and i think that's much more um it was quite funny that we were expecting basically you know like bastianini to be looking after it looking out for his teammate and fair was having absolutely none of it he was uh going for the win but good good on him he's just been really really impressive he's just you know and i'm looking forward to him actually being on a motor two bike because i think that's going to be interesting i think it was interesting seeing Yumi Sasaki raging in park firme raging on the slowdown lap but by the time he came to the press conference, he just about cooled down and he said, you know, I probably could have defended better. Um, but uh, certainly you do wonder if he loses the championship by less than five points, just what the intact GP squad will be saying. Because that's the second time in the flyaway races that uh, Veyer has kind of cost Sasaki points, if you think back to the last lap in India as well. So, um, I, you know, I admire him for going for his first win, but um, but yeah. Thinking of the the team's big picture, maybe they could have uh, had a word in his ear a little uh, a little earlier in the year. 
Yeah, necessary faster, Sasaki. Um, he, it's his, you know, it's up to him. He's got to do it. He's the he's going for the championship. Seventh choke of the year, by the way. Seventh time he's led on the last Ooh. lap, not one. Yeah, that's more than ten podiums now for the team, and Sasaki has yet to win. I mean, you would never have said at the beginning of the season that Bayer, am I saying that right, Dave? Um, yeah, close enough. <laughs> that he would have been like the first one to, to grab 25 points this season. But there's been some big old moments in Moto3 in the last race or two. Uh, you look at Alonso's crash that also took out Danny Helgado, um, as well as the uh, incident between Jose Reda and Dennis Onchu. I mean, the picture among KTM senior management in back in the pit box when that happened was quite unbelievable. I mean, if Jaume Massia wins that title for Honda this year, then it's, it's going to be quite an achievement. Yeah, the one thing about it is the 13 points between them Massey has been able to win three races. He's had podiums in half the races, all those kind of things. So he's been able to tick the boxes. Just about Vire as well. Like Obviously, for me, I work a lot in the junior GP paddock. And he was a rider. Everyone said, you need to keep an eye on this kid. He's just too big for a Moto3 bike. And that was two, three years ago, people were saying that. And he's obviously 18, and he's just a big guy. But he's been super impressive this year two podiums a win and just the attitude that he has is really impressive as well he just doesn't give doesn't give a damn the difference is that he spends a lot of time working on a lap on his own he rides on his own that's the ter- that's how you tell the, uh, a good motor 3 rider from the rest he's not sort of sitting there waiting for a time Neil, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Um, it was one of the few memorable moments from the race Steve um, I was having to write a race report on this earlier and I realised that I only had about three things to write about and uh, I think the most memorable <laughs> of them was uh, Pekka Banyai and Jorge Martin surging down into turn five I think it was on lap five lap f- yeah lap five and uh, Martin had uh, outbraked Banyai at turn four uh, Banyai kind of cut back and then around Martin's outside they both pretty much entered turn five together Looked as though Martin was going to have the line, but Peko managed to just let off his brakes and uh, and enter the turn first. And it was a pretty ballsy, pretty brave move. Um, really impressive stuff at that time. It looked as though Peko was on the ropes and we were expecting it's only a matter of time until uh, Martin responds. But um, that proved to be the, the, the kind of decisive moment in the, the podium battle. And Martin's uh, front tyre temperature had gone up so much when he was following Banya, it never quite went back down and we never really saw any further response from Martin. So, um, yeah, Bunyaya definitely uh, earned that third place with um, the, yeah, the move of the race. 14 points between them now in the championship. And for Jorge Martin, considering this was a bit of a nightmare, only to give up a point over the weekend, it's actually not too bad for him in terms of the championship. Yeah, exactly. I think I think both guys will probably come away from Sepang thinking, not amazing, but not a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, Bunyaya uh, extended his lead by one point, um, but then Martin will also look at it like Peko came away from it with a warning due to front tire to pressure. He also has a warning, of course, as well after uh, Thailand. I'm sure we'll come on to that in due course. That was one of the big talking points on Sunday afternoon. Um, David, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, my moment of the weekend was Mark Marquez uh, trying to follow Franco Morbidelli. Uh, I mean, it's sort of illustrative of two things. Firstly, how much trouble Honda is in. I mean, and afterwards he was like saying, you know, you, you have to do that. Um, it's just basically the only way that you can make a difference. And Morbidelli was saying exactly the same thing. Uh, it's the only way you can only actually, you really need a toe to, to be able to get through when you're in trouble. Um, Mark was then saying like, well, I hope everyone's following me next year because it'll mean I'll be fast. Um, but it sort of, it also illustrated the fact that 
Yamaha had a pretty good weekend, really this uh, this weekend. You know, Quattararo I think was fifth in the uh, in the race. Morbidelli had really serious pace. They were both quick in a couple of the uh, in a couple of the sessions. Um, the Yamaha. I mean, if you have to look at Yamaha and Honda, um, it showed how much trouble Honda is in, and they're in real real trouble. Uh, and they and and Yamaha are really not all that far off. Neil, let's move on to one of the big talking points from the weekend. Enea Bastianini back to winning ways. What was the what was the secret first? Because this was as big of a turnaround in fortunes as we can imagine. Um, well, there was a couple of secrets, Steve. I mean, it's been no secret that Bastianini has uh, been struggling from serious injury all year. You know, cracked his shoulder at the first uh, the first sprint of the year, then I think broke his uh, wrist and ankle in that uh, first corner pileup in Barcelona. So fitness has been a, a big issue. Um, he hasn't exactly strung a massive number of races together. Um, then, of course, he was using a thumb-operated rear brake for the first time here in Sepang after uh, repeatedly um, complaining of uh, issues entering the turn. Um, we know that um, Ane is one of his secrets of success last year when he was so thrilling. Um, finishing third overall was um, his ability to kind of um, let the brakes off quickly and enter the corner, carry decent speed. Uh, into the apex and with this year's Desmo Sedici it just hasn't quite been possible so he was trying to thumb break this weekend and remarkably it, it you know it didn't take long for him to to adapt to it and to get up to speed um, but I think probably most of all um, it was the fact that his job is essentially or his current seat is essentially under threat and um, his bosses were happy to say that on the record, I think it was Saturday morning, Paolo Giabatti said to Jack Appleyard on the MotoGP Live that um, if Martin wins the championship, it will be very difficult. Well, well Ducati will definitely um, uh, contemplate putting Martin into the factory squad. And um, suddenly, NA comes through Q1, qualifies in the front row, um, finishes fourth in the sprint, could have finished third, and then just puts in a a mesmeric, mesmeric display in the race. I mean, um, uh, took advantage of Martin and Bagnaia scrapping at the first turn and never put a foot wrong. This was supposed to be a race of tyre conservation. People were talking about the need to manage the tyres, but his pace was so fast in the race's first half that I was kind of expecting some kind of drop-off in performance in the second half, but um, we didn't see any of it at all. Um, and his race time was, was stunning. I think the race was 15 seconds faster than what we saw in 2022. The top four Ducatis were just on a completely different level to the rest of the field. Um, and this was, yeah, I mean, a pretty remarkable return. It was just two weeks ago that I was saying by, um, Bastianini was my big loser and that maybe we weren't ever going to see the best of him in the factory team. Well, I don't know if he was listening to my comments, but uh, yeah, he certainly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly had a nice repost for that. I mean, there are considerations, like you say, Neil. I mean, Bastianini revealed that he hadn't trained, you know, for three months because of injury. Um, he also felt that that result had been what I think his direct words were a small message to Ducati. He had been told back in Misano that he would have the factory spot for 2024. But I just wonder whether, because we know how good he was at Sepang last year, I just wonder whether it was a case of right place, right timing for him. I mean, I do we expect Bastianini to be this so this perfect and this competitive in Qatar, I, I, I struggle to see it. 
I, I don't think he's going to be as good as uh, as he was here, but I, and I do think he is quick because he's been quick in testing into uh, into Pang as well. Um, this is a good track for him, uh, but I do think he has made a proper step forward. You know that, that that that's the difference. I think sort of like figuring out how to get into the corner has made a big difference, and he'll be closer to where he uh, ought to be. And the other thing about this is he's done himself a fantastic uh, favour in terms of his job because um, by winning the race, he took away so many points from... Uh, I mean, yeah, sure, he took points off of Banyaya, uh, but he also took loads of points off of um, uh, off of Martin as well and made it much more difficult to catch up. Uh, I mean, it was... Ducati, all the eight Ducati riders have now finished on the podium and six of the eight have won Grand Prix. I mean, it was also... It was a Ducati day, wasn't it, in Sepang, or a Ducati weekend. And I think, you know, in Bastianini's case, I mean, Neil, you pointed out how what made him so strong last year. I, I think your previous, uh, I don't know, speculation about whether he fits well into a factory team environment is still very valid. I mean, I think, you know, we have to see more from him on a more consistent basis before we, we make a call. Yeah, that was one interesting thing about the press conference afterwards. He was talking up his kind of relationship with the guys, his kind of rapport with the guys in the factory garage, how not that it was, he wasn't saying it was bad at the start of the year, but it did obviously take a little bit of time for him to to kind of get up to speed, to, to get in sync with them. New crew chief this year, of course, with Marco Rigamonti um, after uh, Alberto Girabiola uh, left for KTM. And, you know, Bastianini, when he was having so much success last year in Grassini, I mean, Grassini was a team that he knew so, so well from way back in his days in Moto3 when he had, um, you know, years uh, riding with them, I think in 2015, 2016, um, maybe 2018 as well um, you know so it was a it was a kind of big adaptation and then as you mentioned the injuries came at such a bad time Pekka Banyaya was saying over the weekend <laughs> I mean I found it quite funny Banyaya so clearly doesn't want to have Jorge Martin in the factory team alongside him he was doing <laughs> using every opportunity to kind of talk up Bastianini and to to kind of make his case for for staying put next year but he was saying that those first five or six races of the year are so crucial because no one is quiet at 100% on new factory machinery in the first five or six races because they've got new bikes. And even if there's only subtle changes to the bikes, they're still understanding best setup, um, base setting, how to adapt the, the, the kind of the finer element, elements of the riding style. Um, and Bastianini missed all of that. And by the time he came back to competition in, I think it was Le Mans, um, you know, the rest of the field were already up to sp- fully up to speed and performing kind of close to their best. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, you have to also factor in just how big a, a blow that was, that, that, that shoulder injury in the first part of the year. And as Adam said, the fact that he couldn't do any gym work with the shoulder injury for, I think, three months afterwards. I think it's interesting, Neil, that you mentioned the difference between being with Grassini and being with the factory team. Grassini is a big family atmosphere. And Ducati always like to portray a big family for the factory team, but they're nothing but. You're a big family if you're winning. If you're losing, you're the man on the outside. And I was really surprised at Chiabadi's comments on Saturday just to light the fire up of Bastianini. Yeah, I was surprised by them as well. Um, although it's not really the first time that we've, uh, you know, we've seen a situation where Ducati shows tough love to one of its riders. And we do know that it can be a bit of a snake pit. Um, you know, pressure doesn't come much higher than being a factory Ducati rider. Um, but I loved Bastianini's performance because it showed that, you know, it showed that sort of 
well, screw you, I'm going to show you that I deserve my place here. And that was the kind of defiance that we saw through so much of last year when he refused to kind of take Pekka Bonyai's championship uh, challenge into consideration when he was harrying him and, and beating him in some occasions in uh, Aragon last year and then fighting with him in Mizano and, and Tepang. Um And again, there was that sort of defiance, that sort of um, demonstration of character, which uh, I really, really liked. And I thought, you know, had earmarked Bastianini for a t- uh, title challenge this year. Um, so, yeah, Sepang has been a good track for him. Um, but I think Qatar was a good track for him last year as well. And we're going to a place which has been resurfaced uh, uh, since we last visited. So, you know, it's kind of a bit of a blank slate for everyone. So I, I don't see any reason why Bastianini can't be at the front again. It's clearly all down to Davide Tardozzi's quite intimate talk on the grid, which was captured on camera before the race. Um, it was quite amusing, actually. You could see... Uh, I was trying to sort of deduce... Bastianini's body language because he was kind of smiling at what Tardozzi was saying but then you know he was also had the demeanor of like um you know can you please sort of fuck off now so I can focus on the race but uh it's it's also quite interesting to watch how a team manager might just say the right things at the right time because uh I thought it was just quite a touching moment between the pair of them and um you know shed some light that you know Bastianini is fitting in yeah, I asked one of the more or less BK team managers about what they do on the grid. And they did say that it's very dependent on the different riders. Sometimes you just have to tell them, right, you need to be aggressive. You need to go out. You need to dominate from the outset. For other riders, it's just give them a pat on the back and let them go in their way. And you need to know when the moment is that you have to give a cuddle and the moment where you have to give a kick up the arse. And uh, at the end of the day, Ducati's got the best bike on the grid, so they can approach things a little bit differently. But Bastianini needed something to change and luckily for him it changed in Malaysia now the one thing about it is and Adam you mentioned is this going to be a one-off or is this going to be something that he can continue doing Sepang's a place he has always gone well Qatar is a place he's gone well too but it is up to Bastianini now to really prove that he's able to make that step going forward and that this wasn't just that one weekend where everything came together because how many times in MotoGP in the last few years have we seen it where a rider has that one perfect weekend and then the next week goes back to being a little bit anonymous. Just a question for uh, you guys. I think you mentioned this last night, Stephen. I thought it was a good question. Is it not a bit bizarre that it's taken this long for the team to try out a thumb brick for Bastianini when he's been complaining of um, of cornering and entering issues um, right away from almost preseason? Um, it, it kind of struck me as slightly strange that it has taken this long for them to try this uh, this kind of uh, novel. Um, this, this novel piece, which has obviously had such a big effect. Yeah, this novel technology that's been around for 30 years and almost every rider on a on a big bike has on their bike. I was shocked. I assumed it was a typo whenever I saw it that he hadn't been using it up until now because it's just such an integral part of how you have to ride a big bike these days. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it's a big step putting a, a thumb uh, a thumb brake on because you have to learn to ride completely differently so much of what is happening is instinctual when you are racing you want everything to come as naturally as possible so you don't have to think about things so you can think about the things that really matter um using a thumb brake becomes extremely unnatural and in fact it, it was quite i think it was on saturday that bastianini was saying uh like the first couple of laps were a bit of a mess because he'd forgotten oh yeah i've got a thumb brake i'm supposed to be using that uh, and once he started riding it was fine so it's it it's you're having to re-drill yourself and that's what uh that's what's so difficult that's why crew chiefs don't necessarily want people to switch in the middle of a season yeah but even then dave 
this is what his 50th Grand Prix in the Premier class a Moto2 world champion where in Moto2 everyone had switched to scooter brakes or thumb brakes it is surprising it's taken him until this point in his career to make that change uh, yeah but if you don't need it you don't you don't do it I think you know there's lots of riders who just you know never use the rear brake at all apart from uh, to control wheelie sort of thing and so when you suddenly have to find a different way to uh, to to approach corner entry or to get through the corner then it becomes a big uh, then it becomes a big thing I mean there's still lots of if you go go down walk up and down pit lane I would say Probably seventy-five percent of the of the of the bikes have got thumb brakes, but there's plenty who still don't because they don't need it or, or they don't think they need it. They don't want to use the rear brake. They you know they, they ride differently. There are lots of ways. These bikes are so adjustable. There's lots of different ways of achieving the same result. Well, just uh, to move on as well, then Dave. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about Ducati's lineup for next year. What uh, they were looking to do with Bastianini versus Martin. That wasn't the only big rider market news over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it looks like uh, Luca Marini's nailed on for the re- for the second Repsol Honda seat. It seems like um, he's going to get a two year deal instead of a one year deal, which I think uh, was going to be the deal breaker. Uh, we talked about this with uh, 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 last night on the note show a little bit. Um, that sets off a whole uh, sort of sequence of, of various other uh, signings as well, which is that Fermín Aldeguer goes to VR46, which again is also interesting because, you know, he's Spanish and he's going to be joining a very Italian team, a team set up specifically to promote um, uh, Italian uh, talent. Um, and uh, they're also going to have to find a replacement for, or Speedup is going to have to find a replacement and find some sort of compensation because I think that was also part part of it as well. Um, I think it, it's very interesting. On I think on Saturday that uh, uh, I can't remember if Saturday or something that Marini was saying that yeah, sure, I want to go to a uh, to a factory team. Um, you know, it, it's the dream to be able to develop a bike and uh, and do that. But uh, he was also realistic about the fact that he's on a bike that he can already win on. So it's, uh, it, I think it's a really interesting signing. I think it's going to be good. For a start, he's on a two-year deal, which means he has a chance to actually shape the bike. I think the bike is at its uh, nadir. It's at the absolute bottom. It's not going to get worse. It can only get better. So even if he does nothing... Um, he's going to look like he's going to look like a genius because the bike's going to be uh, going to be improving sort of naturally. Uh, and the other thing is, if he's got a contract through for twenty four and twenty five, at the end of twenty five, there's not going to be a lot of riders available because everyone else is going to be on this two year uh, cycle for twenty five and twenty six. Um, so he has a better than normal chance to keep it, to turn a two year deal into a three year deal. Um, but the other thing about uh, about Luca Marini is he's really intelligent. He's some, he's like after Dovi uh, uh, Dovicioso retired, Marini has has become the rider that I go to when I want something a complicated technical aspect of riding explained because he can explain extremely well. He's a very thorough analytical riding rider, and I quite like the idea of pairing Mir and Marini together to see um, how they work to actually develop a bike because they you know what Honda needs. Uh, people to be brought forward uh, and to help uh, move the bike. And the other question is, does Marini, uh, Valentino Rossi's brother, go into Mark Marquez's team or not? I find it always interesting that the first thing that's always said about Marini is Rossi's brother. And that's six years, I think it is, he's with that VR46 team. 
he's obviously had a lot of success in Moto 2 and Moto GP, but this is a chance for him to spread his wings and actually be his own man, be his own rider, and try and show everyone just what he can do outside of that atmosphere and environment. So I think it's a big positive for him to be able to switch. And he'll get paid. He'll be a factory rider in MotoGP. It's not going to do any harm for his bank balance. Like you said, David, two-year contract should be fine for him to be able to stay there longer. Adam, what about you? Uh, yeah, I agree with Dave. I think it's an interesting move. Um, I do wonder, I mean, we're going to get to see Marini's development chops as well. Uh, but, you know, considering the rate of crashes that the Honda riders have accumulated this year, um, Lucas had um, more than several shoulder problems. I just wonder whether, you know, he's prepared to be thrown down the track quite a bit getting to, to know the Honda. I mean, also one other factor, and Joanne Mir was talking about this, Dave, I think you sent through his transcript, which was quite interesting. Uh, Mir was saying how condensed and compact the Honda package is, and Marini's probably the biggest or tallest rider on the MotoGP grid currently with Alex Marquez. And, um, you know, he's, uh, I think Mir joked there will be a lot of elbows and knees sticking out around, um, you know, the Valencia test sort of time. So Marini, I think, has got a big, big job to do. It's, it's, it was absolutely crucial that he got two years um, with Honda. So, you know, props to HRC and the likes of Alberto Pudge for trying to push that through. Of course, we're still waiting for confirmation. But, um, you know, it's made things kind of interesting. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's just refreshing to see a somewhat left field pick for Honda. If you think about it, um, uh, HRC have now got three really tall riders because Zarco is tall, Marini is tall, um, uh, Juan Mir is quite tall as well. Uh, it's only uh, Takanakagami who's sort of normal rider height, sort of 165-ish. Yeah, tall by your standards, Div. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's an interesting sign. You know, you could look at it from one point of view and say that Marini is absolutely mad to be jumping off. Essentially, okay, he's going to be on a year-old bike next year, but the best package, the most rounded package on the grid. Marco Bezzecchi has shown that you can fight for the world championship up to a certain point with that package. Um, he's in a, a friendly uh, team, which is kind of built around his every need. Um, why would you leave that for the worst bike on the grid? But for the reasons you said, I think it does make sense if you're looking really. And also these guys are, are super ambitious and believe completely in their own ability. Um, you know, essentially what was Marini's endgame at VR46. I mean, he was never really going to get a factory Ducati seat with Bezzecchi in the way, Martin in the way, Bastianini in the way, maybe Marquez in the way next year. Um, so that was pretty much an option that was out of out of, out of of control. Um, and, you know, if Honda are really serious about turning this operation around, um, you know, he... he genuinely believes in himself to have those kind of analytical details um, that he can give um, to, to, to kind of steer the ship. And um, Joanne Zarco was quite interesting yesterday talking about this, saying that Marini's never been one of those kind of otherworldly talents. And when you're not super talented and you're quite smooth like he is, then you are kind of forced to, if you want to be fast, you're forced to kind of really think about things and really think about not only what the bike is doing, but how you can kind of improve yourself on the bike. Um I mean, you could say that that's a bit of a a, a, a backhanded compliment. Um, but, um, you know, Marini kind of is one of those guys that is super analytical and, and able to kind of uh, detail certain things. So, yeah, now it's just going to be... And he's another Ducati rider going to Honda along with Zarco who can kind of point them in the way of, okay, the Ducati does this really well. You need to work on this. Um, so, you know, in that in that respect, it's uh, I think it's it's a good move. 
Neil, David also mentioned about Aldeguer potentially replacing Mourinho at the VR46 team. You're obviously Mr. Moto 2, but uh, this was another really impressive weekend from Furman. I mean, the lad was just uh, taking the piss, really. Um, I think his his advantage was seven seconds by the flag, and that included a stand-up victory wheelie. Um, he's been on another plane the last couple of weeks. He's been so, so impressive. Um, and, yeah, there was lots of talk about him maybe going to, to Honda, which proved to be um, just not really true at all um, over the weekend. And, uh, yeah, he's. it looks as though he's going to bag the, the VR46 seat. Um, I heard that their options when they heard that Mourinho was going to go to Honda were Aldeguer, Alonso Lopez or Tony Arbolino. Um, and you would have to say of, of that current crop currently, you know, Aldeguer is the most exciting out of those names. I'm still just 18. Um, and... Yeah, like what a, what a talent. He's, he's kind of, I mean, in the last couple of races, you know, Phillip Island hadn't been wet. You know, he would have absolutely dominated all of them. Um, and, you know, doing that against someone like Acosta, you could argue he's been in championship kind of mode and, and trying to just get results when he can rather than go for wins. But, um, yeah, to beat even someone like Acosta that convincingly, you have to be some talent to do that. Obviously enough, um, this weekend we talked a little bit earlier on about the tyre pressures and different factors that go into having this as a little bit of a processional race. But Ad, when you look at this race, it does really make it crystal clear why the tyre pressure rule is so unpopular with riders, engineers and pretty much everyone inside the paddock. It's a massive factor, even though I've said before and I'll say it again, I think the tyre pressure thing is just one of the most boring narratives around MotoGP at the moment. Um, you know, it's something that this kind of the sport has buried itself into in terms a little bit down this sort of rabbit hole. But um, I mean, my overriding emotion after the race yesterday was, you know, is it something that Dawn are going to look at thinking, right, you know, we have to make changes here Would that or was that just a knee jerk reaction to you know, if you've got a season for a 20 Grand Prix, then you're not going to have fantastic, amazing last lap, brilliant races for all 20. Uh, maybe it was just one of those races where it was quite formulaic. I mean, I think there was one position change in the top five the whole way through. Uh, so I, I don't know. I just wonder what your guys' opinions were on that, because I think we we perhaps shouldn't go too crazy and say, well, look at the state of MotoGP. It's terrible. And, you know, it's it's, it's poor entertainment. And, and maybe think, well, it was just a case of the bikes, the Ducatis in this case, the riders, um, everything coming together, you know, with KTM having their problems, Aprilia obviously having their problems, which we knew about coming into this another hot Grand Prix. Uh, I, I don't know whether we should go too over the top in saying that MotoGP is in a ragged state. Yeah, I mean, when you sort of mentioned this in the chat before we recorded this, I grabbed all of the results of the dry races from before this. Uh, and what is obvious, because I do remember there's been a lot of stinkers in uh, uh, at Sepang, just a lot of very, very uh, tedious races. Don't mention it. <laughs> Well, if you, actually, that's a, that's a great example because if you think about it, if you take away all the drama between uh, between Rossi and Marquez, 2015 was a terrible race. You know, it was just really, really tedious. Uh, Valentino Rossi, I think he ended up uh, he he was on the podium 13 seconds uh, behind the winner 
after uh, after all of that messing about. Like, it's just like the average gap between first and second uh, over all the dry, uh, dry races going back to 2013 is 2.2 seconds. Top three is 5.4 seconds. And the top 10 is something like 36 seconds. That is a massively spread out field. Um, so you have a track because it is big, it's wide, uh, there's lots of ways to ride there. Um, uh, it's easy to spread to spread out. It's got two humongous straights, which uh, allow you know if you can get the drive, you can uh, you can actually really really make the difference. Um, so yeah, it's got everything going against it, and then you add in this the the effect that aero has had, the effect that uh, the, the, that ride height devices have had, and the, the just basically the effect of all of this technology, which is overloading the front tire, which is you know creating this problem with the with front tire temperatures going up and putting so much pressure up. You are always going to end up with very tedious races. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones where, and you mentioned some of the factors there, Dave. Like for me. The ride height devices, aero was something that's very difficult to put back into the bottle whenever it's been released. But there's certain things in MotoGP that I just don't really see why they would still be on the bikes. They've developed them packages for the ride height controls. Is there any benefit to keeping them there? For me, it doesn't help the racing, and that's a big factor. Obviously, aero is a factor, but Adam, you mentioned it about the biggest factor being bike by bike. And the Ducati has such a big advantage right now. Not in terms of just the bike, but in terms of having eight riders out there, giving them data, giving them information. And that's what gives them their big advantage. Yamaha has two bikes out there, Aprilia with four, Honda with four. It's difficult to fight against that. I mean, from Midland's point of view, um, after a lot of the riders' comments on, on Saturday after the sprint, a lot of them were complaining about the front tire pressure going up, how difficult it was for them to ride. And a lot of the riders were imploring Midland to um, to lower the uh, the kind of the the lowest limit, which is 1.88 bar. They were, you know, I think Brad Binder was saying, why couldn't they just lower that to uh, 1.80? Um, and, you know, Mitchell were kind of on a bit of a firefighting mission on Sunday morning after reading and hearing a lot of these riders' comments. And uh, Piero Taramasa was, was telling us that um, on Saturday, I think there was only four riders that were kind of having issues with their with their pressure. He said the the kind of the issue here was that their medium front tire, which was the the race tire for both the sprint and the main race, it was too soft. The compound was just too soft. There was a lot of movement under braking, and that kind of had a similar sort of feeling to what it must be like whenever the the kind of the front tire pressure has gone up. Um, but you know. We put that to a couple of riders on Sunday and they weren't necessarily uh, buying it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those issues now that's just kind of part and parcel of um, of modern day MotoGP. Um, and, um, yeah, th- th- there's definitely been occasions where the racing has suffered Sunday, I think, was, was definitely one of them. The, the problem with the tyre choice was, uh, uh, talking to a few people afterwards, was that... Um, the medium uh, was the compound was too soft. Uh, the hard, the I mean, they didn't have the edge grip. The reason that everyone had uh, went for the medium and not the hard was because although the hard had the edge grip or had the the support in braking and would have helped a lot in keeping the, the temperatures lower, it just didn't have the edge grip. And there are so many long, fast corners at uh, at Sepang that you 
just couldn't you wouldn't have been fast enough you would have lost too much uh, in the corners if you'd have chosen the hard so you, you had to go for the medium compound and especially in those temperatures uh, it was ju- it was really really going to suffer um the, the, but yeah i mean the problem is <laughs> the problem is the bikes uh, yeah, you're right, Neil. I mean, it was interesting hearing Piero Teramasa's comments, um, you know, pre-race about, you know, riders having to deal with the tyre selection rather than the pressure. I think, uh, I can't remember which rider said it as well now, but then, you know, the combination of the hot races as well as the, you know, the vortexes and whatever else the riders are having to deal with, with slipstreams and everything else pushing up. I think it was Maverick Vinales actually talking about this with, you know, it's not just the pressure, it's also the temperature. I mean, it's a bit of a perfect storm, if you like. But then I also did quite like Brad Binder's comments post-race, whereby this is just a facet of MotoGP now. Uh, the riders and the teams have to work it out. They have to deduce the best way to to manage the situation and just get on with it. It's, it's I don't think stamping our feet saying MotoGP is ruined and, you know, tyre pressures is is throwing everything to the bin is necessarily the right sort of uh, remedy at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and the reason we have these uh, minimum tyre pressures is because uh, Michelin have cut these tyres before and when they've been run underinflated, they've been able to see damage in the sidewall. Now, nothing has happened so far, uh, but as um, uh, I was talking to Neil about uh, the uh, with the opening scene of the French classic La Haine, um, uh, jusqu'ici, uh, what is it? Jusqu'ici, ne... tu vas bien. Tout va bien. Yeah, yeah, so far so good. Um, and it is so far so good until something goes wrong. Maybe nothing will go wrong if they did lower it, but you just don't know. That was another thing I asked Taramas on Sunday morning. Um, would it be possible for them to lower this pressure? After, you know, after some of the riders had suggested that. He said the problem with that is a couple of years ago, kind of before the, the advent of this, this kind of aerodynamics ride height device era of MotoGP, um, the, the sort of the minimum that they would recommend bikes and teams, or sorry, teams to, to run would be two bar. And he said they've already gone down, you know, 0.1 two bar from that. And they feel that that's kind of on the limit. He said zero point, um, sorry, 1.80 would be too low, too close to the limit, but he could see something over the next couple of weeks when they're in negotiations over the, over the winter to, to maybe lower it by 0.03. So to 1.85 instead of 1.88 you know but he's not seeing like a, a dramatic kind of lowering of the of the pressure um, and just you know should also mention this was the the most critical uh front tire pressure race that we've had so far since this rule was kind of implemented um back in was it austria i think it was you know we had four riders receive warnings in um indonesia we had four receive either warnings or in alicia spargo's case of penalty in uh, Thailand and we had five this time Banyaya being one of them which obviously is very interesting for the championship then Bastianini as well was another notable one as he was out front all the race um, but yeah this is quite interesting in that Banyaya has kind of played his joker with Martin being on a warning after after Thailand there was kind of a fear that we could go to the last race and Banyaya would be able to run whatever pressure he liked because you know the worst he could he could face was a warning now both he and martin have to go into the final two races with a very careful kind of strategy or as technicians have to have a very technic um a very careful strategy to ensure that they're not under for for more than 50 percent of the race yeah and obviously the penalty for that nil three second penalty at the end of the race so it could well be something that has a big factor at the end of the season let's move on to our winners and losers from sapang adam what about you who's your big winner 
I was going to say Peko Bagnaya because it was a very strong weekend again at the time where the championship is coming down to a bit of a pressure point and we all know that Bagnaya can handle pressure pretty well based on 2022 but I also want to give a nod to someone we haven't mentioned yet Pedro Acosta you know uh, two championships in three years three if you had the Red Bull Rookies Cup because he's made his way all, all the way up through the, the KTM structure um, you know thanks to Neil he passed me on the uh, the audio from Pedro's press conference that they just managed to squeeze in before the start of the MotoGP race and you know there's a couple of interesting comments in there Acosta said you know I'm the new Pedro Acosta I'm not the new Mark Marquez um, in, in response to people making the comparison of the, the second coming and um, you know he said he's experienced in handling pressure now which I thought was another uh, element of his career so far that you probably don't appreciate because not only has he got the spotlight of being this fantastic talent, but he has been right at the front of Grand Prix races pretty much all the way through for the better part of three years. Uh, He had his sort of apprenticeship at the beginning of last year trying to work out Moto2, uh, hit the ground quite a bit, and then I had that training injury, which I think sidelined him for at least two to three GPs. Um, and he said next year in MotoGP, that will be the time to make mistakes. You know, I mean, this is proof again that he's got a bit of a level head on his shoulders and um, to, to grab a cliche. And wow, I mean, Aki Ayo, uh, they've won the team's championship again. Third year in a row, they're Moto2 world champions. And, um, you know, what a finishing school, uh, basically, for, for any young racer that wants to make their way to the top. It's going to be really interesting seeing Pedro Acosta on the KTM, especially in the Gas Gas team, which is you know a, a, not a perfect situation, versus Fermin Aldeguer on what we know is a completely sorted bike. Um, Aldeguer has been very strong in the second half of the championship, and you know it, it looks like the rookie of the year next year. I mean, like you know, it looked like it, there was only going to be one rookie. Now we might get two rookies, uh, and it might be quite a fa- uh, battle. It's quite an interesting year, you know, as Adam said, Acosta's just been so consistent this year, ridden with his head on so many occasions, um, measured up what he needed to do and didn't extend himself beyond that. Um, 14th podium of the year, which equals Mark Marquez and Johan Zarco's record for most podiums in uh, an intermediate class campaign. Um, he still could overhaul Zarco's record points haul in an intermediate class campaign so this could be a completely you know this could be a record-breaking campaign by the end of the year um and yeah i think it's it, it's quite remarkable just um how much he has achieved at such a young age the youngest ever intermediate class champion bar danny pedroza um younger even than mark marquez when he won the, the intermediate class title so you know he's just um he's kind of he's in that ballpark isn't he of of kind of guys that went on to achieve such amazing things in MotoGP you know he's matching or even um, bettering their, their their record set um, and uh, I guess I had the, the chance to to chat with uh, his team boss Aki Ayo um, over the weekend and uh, he was able to offer up a couple of interesting things about his young rider. So yeah so after last year and the preseason that we had has this season gone as expected from Pedro's point of view? Yes, um, generally with Pedro, okay, this is the third season when we work with him, more or less now three years we have worked together since the first test, end of 20 in, in, uh, in Spain. Uh, I would say that uh, everything has gone like uh, <laughs> close to perfect. That uh, I see Pedro, after the excellent season in Moto3, even he says sometimes that, ah, I need to learn how I did in Moto3, but I would say he did really, really well. 
so there was not it's normal that sometimes during the season you have some points this and that that it's not so good and of course we are also uh, human so sometimes that we expect more sometimes less and we do mistakes but I think we need everything for learning and uh, Moto3 season was really good even he say sometimes he was thinking too much championship he did mistakes and everything but it was was really good and the Moto2 season afterwards I think that maybe his expectation was a little bit too high beginning for me everything went very well more, more, more than well but his expectation was maybe too high and this may be effect for his work that he maybe crash and did mistakes a little bit more than was necessary but in other hand I was talking in second season in Moto2 after a few races sometimes with big words with him and sometimes with, with the kind words but uh, I explained that Pedro we need it. I remember after Le Mans crash when he was already a little bit coming back since Heres it, 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 the Le Mans crash that Pedro it's, if you are not doing these mistakes now you are not complete when you reach the top in Moto2 and later in MotoGP that for me you need this is the life and we need ups and downs and with these deep moments and mistakes we have chance to be much stronger and much more constant in the future in our world. And I think he understands these points very well. He don't need too much advice for this. His life understanding is in really good level. His education for life is really, really good considering his age. He's much more mature than his age. But of course, still everyone makes mistakes. But for me, it's how you take the mistakes and how you use it for the future. And he do it. He, he, he use those moments. Uh, very, very well to help him in the future. Yeah. He said something after the last race in Thailand. He said, I was riding more with the head than the heart. And it seems to me that's probably been the key of this season. He's been super fast in one races when needed, but also when... Key of this season and a little bit key of this boy also. But especially during this season, he has learned a lot about this. That, let's say, like, like we are used to say, we push when it's time to push. We attack when it's time to attack. And this is about this that using the brain, but don't forget the heart <laughs> and, 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 and the feelings and, and, and emotions. But uh, he has learned a lot to control his emotions and, and, and use the brain also. Maybe sometimes even too much. Sometimes I have said to him that hey, now it's time to push, now it's time to use emotions and go and stop thinking. But uh, these points are really strong part of him and like I always repeat and repeat his life understanding is for his age is in very high level. Yeah. This is a very strong point of him and I really enjoy to talk with him. For sure someone can say and he can say that he learned something from me but I have to say I also learn a lot from him. So this is always nice in our job that you can even learn from the young people and of course if you can help you can give your experience and advice for the use for the young, 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 young kids. But uh, I have to say that I have not, I don't need to talk with, I have not need to talk with him straight and honest and, and, and like a strong in many, many, many times. Many people maybe think that I am serious more than I am with Pedro, for example. Sometimes I am serious and sometimes I am very honest for the writers, but with Pedro has not been important many times and with him it's more about uh, talking about funny things, joking and talking about the life than, than something else. But if you ask him for sure, he, 
tell to you that I have fight with Agi only two times. <laughs> and he even remember very well the days and the races. <laughs> once in Moto3 and once in Moto2 last year, 21 and 22. Okay. It's only two times when we talk with the strong words. Right, okay. And for me, both times was very important and he used 100% those points when we talk and, and, and uh, find a way to improve. Yeah, okay. I spoke to Pedro at the start of this year. Obviously, he's kept the same team around him since 2021, in terms of crew chief and crew members. He seems to be aware that having this kind of super hyped team yeah. around him is also... No, of course, this is always important part yeah. of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, a couple of things I've noticed Pedro's riding, I think, in the hotter races that we've had this year, India and Indonesia especially. Rear tire, very difficult to manage. No one could live with Pedro towards the end. It seems that he's just able to kind of, in these situations, manage his rear tire very well. And we see that how he works through the weekend. For sure, it's part of it what we, what you mentioned before, that using uh, many times uh, not only the heart and emotions, using the head. Just part of it. It's it's mature guy, clever guy, and quick to learn. So it means that if you are all of this. You, you you learn learn to manage the important things and learn to learn to understand where you need to focus. I always used to say racing is simple if we keep it simple and Pedro followed this slogan also very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's it like in the box you said that you enjoy working with them that you know sometimes you have jokes and you can be have a lot of fun with them. Is it just a he seems like a kind of a serious guy, but can also be free and joking. First of all, this is part of the process, and I think in paddock, I don't know many guys who is joking so much than Pedro. Even someone can see in media and everything, he's maybe a little bit different, but this guy has really tough jokes, and uh, he's <laughs> joking nearly all the time, even he's focused for the work. But for me, it's part of the process. I for, for sure, it's part of the process of him to keep himself relaxed and close with the group. He see when you are relaxed, you can focus well. When you are uh, very well and uh, let's say have a fun with your group, you feel also the support close of you. So it's part of those things again that he use his head. Yeah. He understand to focus for the right things and keep the things simple. Yeah, yeah. And the, using really the slogans, what I feel is important for racing, but I'm honest, for sure, it's not only following this because I teach him. He understands those things already, yeah. uh, basically himself a lot. Yeah. We try to support sometimes, but yeah. that, uh, this is more about him. Pedro is a little bit opposite, but it has not been everything so easy. Maybe education at home also has been enough tough. Yeah. Not only doing this all the time. <laughs> These things help you in long term in the future. Yeah. He's one of... For me, I always joke that he's like the last musketeer, Jose musketeer of the old school anymore. Yeah. There is Brad, there is Jack, there is few other guys who are still not the social media stars and still like old school guys. Oliveira also a little bit, many of them. But especially I, I, I say Jack and Brad, for example, and uh, then it's coming Pedro, but it's not many other left anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Old school, I like this. Old school attitude help you for the many things. Already in the family for the education, and then in the later if you learn it well and you keep it in your mind, you are not getting 
flying, this old school mentality helps you a lot. Yeah. And you're not distracted by yes. needless things which don't help your racing. Keep it simple and focus for the right things. Great to be able to hear from Aki on the podcast as well, Neil. So thanks for that. I'll, I'll come to you then, Neil, just as your reward for that interview. Who was your big winner from the weekend? My big winner was uh, Fabio Quartararo, Steve. Um, Dave mentioned earlier just uh, what a good a good ride he had, what a good ride his teammate um, Franco Morbidelli had as well. It was a good weekend for Yamaha at Sepang. Um, and I've just been generally very impressed with uh, Fabio in the second half of the year. He has reset his expectations, basically from Austria. Um he knew that he was getting too frustrated at the fact that he was coming into the race weekends in the season's first half, wanting to win, wanting to fight for the podium. And when that became obvious that he couldn't do that, it was, uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was as if he was throwing a strop, but he was letting emotion get the better of him. Um, I think in the second half of this year, he's made himself aware of what realistic targets are and he's maximized the possibilities of his performance on many, many different occasions. There's been a few dud weekends recently, like Japan, Australia were horrible, but there's also been some really impressive ones. And I think Quattararo has shown just what a class rider he is. He was very much the best of the rest here, fifth behind the, the lead quartet. And actually, Quattararo was, um, he was faster than last year's race winning time at Sepang. Um, and considering his bike has not really changed at all, I think it shows, you know, what a good job both he and his team have done. You know, at the start of the year, he was complaining that the Yamaha wouldn't turn, that it was very nervous in corner entry. Now he's super strong and breaking. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's interesting to, to wonder, you know, is this the is this second half of the season really where Yamaha are at? Or is it kind of the first half of the season? And, and maybe they're not quite in such a bad situation as, as we feared. It still obviously needs a, a massive amount of work. But, you know, compared to Honda, I think it's, it's not quite that level of, of bad. So, yeah, Quattararo, I think, has reminded us just what a class rider is in the last couple of weeks. And I thought Sunday was another excellent performance. Dave, what about you? Who was your winner? I mean, my winner was the winner, um, Anea Bastianini, for lots of reasons. Not just because he's won, he's proved his point, he shows that he's still fast. Uh, he did exactly what he needed to, on both Saturday and Sunday uh, to help the team by staying behind uh, uh, Banyaya in the sprint race and then just, you know, buggering off into the distance in the, in the main race, taking as many points as possible from, uh, from Jorge Martin. Um, yeah, I mean, he comes out of this. We went, we went into this champ, into this weekend with doubts over his uh, future at the factory team. Now he looks like being absolutely nailed on. So yeah, big winner. I'll give my honourable mention to Alex Marquez as well. Obviously the sprint winner and then a podium on Sunday as well. So a really good weekend for Marquez. But Adam, where there's winners, there's David Amps. Sorry, there's losers that had to get up first thing in the morning to watch the race. But uh, <laughs> who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, I'm going to go for Honda, Steve. Uh, they're nearing almost 60 crashes for both riders and Repsol Honda team this year, which is a phenomenal amount. Uh, I think uh, if Mark Marquez falls one more time, then he's going to beat his own personal record set from 2017. And uh, Joan Mir, you know, having as almost as many crashes this year as he's had, like in all of his previous seasons in MotoGP. And poor old Takanakagami just seems to be a bit of a, a crash test dummy. It seems um, he's on the floor more often than not. So yeah, another weekend where um, you know Ken Kawuchi's uh, famous inverted smile seemed wholly appropriate, and uh, Honda were reminded at the sea at the, the scene of the place where they're going to have to show something different for 2024 uh, of the scale of the job. David, what about you? Who was your loser? Uh, well, my 
uh, my loser was your favourite, uh, uh, Steve. It was um, Alvaro Bautista, who was given a wild card, turned up, and was absolutely nowhere. And my question is, I mean, like, I have a theory. My eye, it, it, because he is such, a, he's amazing to watch riding that Panigale. Um, but he's not riding a Panigale. He's riding a Desmond Sedici on completely different tyres, completely different bike. Um, but he was absolutely anonymous. He was, but he should deserve the winner of the weekend just because he didn't don the gold leathers at any stage, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. I would. I would also say that uh, to state that he's my favourite coming into this weekend is quite the stretch. <laughs> also, um, Alvaro was explaining to us yesterday that he had kept it very quiet coming into the weekend and then during the weekend. But uh, Steve, you'll obviously know this better than I because I think you were there. But at the test. Proceeding, uh, sorry, after the the final round of, of the Superbike season at Hareth, I think he had a big crash. He said he tweaked his neck, and um, he said that for whatever reason, he's obviously done a little bit of damage to his neck, maybe one of the vertebrae in his neck, and he just had no power on the left hand side of his kind of upper body shoulder. Um, and he said that, um, I mean, these are Alvaro's comments. Very competitive when he was breaking into right hand turns, but when he was breaking into lefts, um, no strength there, and um, just really couldn't understand why um he said he felt no pain from the injury but um it was depriving him of his strength and he felt that it was a real missed opportunity so he was a bit gutted that uh it panned out the way it was the way it did and uh, he wasn't really able to to show i guess his his true potential yeah alvaro did have a big crash in the test and at the time he didn't really mention it other than i had a crash but uh, typically if you have a crash like that a vert can easily pinch the nerve and it doesn't really have a, a fracture or any damage to the actual bone but it means that you lose the nerve ending you lose that strength you lose that feeling and it can have a big impact it's got nothing to do with a crash it was when he was trying to squeeze into those stupid leathers after the race <laughs> that you know he just cricked his neck and that was it <laughs> yeah he needed mario to be a little bit more active with the the lube to be able to get himself into those ones neil what about you who was your big loser from the weekend well um, this is not denigrating any of the riders in the class, but I just think Moto2 as a whole has been entirely forgettable the last couple of, uh, well, the last couple of months, really. Um, yeah, I mean, Australia was only interesting because it was wet and the conditions were so extreme, but I'm really struggling to think of any Moto2 race that was worth watching um, since Barcelona, and then before that, Silverstone, and then before that, Kota, which was a brilliant race, no doubt. But yeah, it's just been a season when there's been interesting talents there. And I'm very excited by the likes of Pedro Costa, Fermin Aldeguer, Tony Arbolino. I think they're going to go on to do great things in MotoGP. But the racing this year, I think, has been has been really forgettable. And it's just followed the same pattern. Some guy gets into the lead at the start, pulls away, and everything is very spread out. And maybe we'll have something to talk about if a couple of guys are fighting for third or fourth. But generally, the racing towards the front has been largely forgettable. And, I mean, I'm really, I'm a big, big fan of Acosta, but the title fight was actually not really a title fight at all. Tony Arbolino uh, basically gave it up with a complete whimper and showed that he wasn't he wasn't anywhere near uh, ready to, to, to be the champion this year. So I thought the title fight actually didn't turn out to be much of a fight either. So, yeah, Model 2, I think, has just been disappointed in, in recent times. The Sepang Moto 2 race did make uh, the Sepang Moto GP race look like an absolute cracker. <laughs> um, Neil, I think you're you're spot on with the assessment of Moto 2, and there's definitely no lack of talent there. But I just find it very weird to try and explain how you can have Somkiat Chantra, how you can have Philip Salach, 
uh, how you compare, have Aaron Connett, you know, suddenly excelling, Celestino Vietti one weekend and then completely disappear in the next. I mean, these riders that pop up and then just fade away from, from competitiveness, it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around. Uh, to me, it's the, it's the team. The team plays such a big uh, role in uh, in this. And I think there's a very, there's a big difference in uh, the quality of teams. It's no surprise to see uh, you know, basically the same teams. It's the 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 IO team are always at the front. Uh, the uh, you know Mark VDS are almost always at the front. Um, you know Ponce uh, 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 or well Ponce is you know quite often at the front. Speed up are sometimes at the front, sometimes not at the front because of the uh, because of the nature of the bike. But yeah, so much of it I think is just down to the teams. Yeah, you would have to look at it and say, especially for speed up, you look at it, they are the ultimate boom and bust in Moto2. It's wins or podiums or pretty much scraping around a few points. And that's the big difference. Obviously, for me, the big winners are the people that sign up for us on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. So Eric and Michael, two of our new patrons this week for our paddock note show. So obviously, because we're in the middle of a triple header, we're not going to have too much time to dive into our Qatar Grand Prix preview. So check out Thursday's Paddock Notes show. That'll be on your normal podcast platforms to be able to get you up to date with what we'll hear from the ground in Qatar. Adam, you've already said you're going to be there next time out with Neil. So we'll be able to get a lot of good information. And you've got some good interviews lined up for us as well. Uh, yeah, like I said, we spoke hoping to speak to um, you know the Netherlands' new sensation um, as well as uh, Fabio Quattararo. We've got a chat with him. Um, incidentally, if people follow us on Twitter um, or on Patreon and you've got any questions for us to put to Fabio, then let us know. I know he's done a podcast with Dorna recently, so we'll try and do a little bit of a different angle. Um, the last thing we need him to do is rehash some of his struggles with Yamaha, so maybe we'll try some different kind of questions. But um, I'm kind of looking forward to Qatar in a way. I mean, I know it's been completely remodeled uh, for the Formula One that's just been there this year. I mean, usually uh, all of us remember going to La Salle was not the most salubrious experience because the paddock was just formed of these crappy wooden huts. And we would have to do debriefs outside, trying to crowd around riders, usually with a helicopter buzzing away in the background, um, fairly you know, rudimentary working conditions. And I, I think that will be an upscale this time. Um, and of course, it's the, the night race. So it's a, a little bit of a different kettle of fish. It, it's going to be very different in that the surface is incredibly aggressive. Uh, Michelin are going to be bringing an extra front and an extra rear compound because they don't know about it. We saw in, I think, the F1 race, they had a massive problems with tyres um, because of the surface. The abrasion. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just the abrasion of the surface is very, very abrasive. And also, uh, we are going at a different time of year when uh, ambient temperatures and therefore track temperatures are going to be much, much higher as well. Normally, it gets quite cold. They've moved the race back an hour to 8 o'clock, which is probably a little bit better in terms of the just the temperature profile. But um, yeah, it's going to be a very different race to what we normally see. Yeah, and I think Michelin's... Pierre Taramasso said on Sunday night that they're expecting a very challenging weekend. So it could be one of those weekends where things get quite weird and we see a couple of uh, couple of guys that we weren't expecting to, to, to see up front. Yeah, there's always a challenge in, in uh, Qatar as well that you can easily have a sandstorm blows in as well. It's particularly at this time of year for World SBK. We've been there in October, November a few times and it's always been very different conditions to what we get for the season opening Grand Prix where the sand comes in and creates that film across it so it just makes it even more difficult out there. Neil, you'll obviously be travelling out but you've got another, what, couple of days in Kuala Lumpur? Yes, uh, two nights, two nights in Kuala Lumpur, Steve. Yes, exactly. So I've been wedded to my laptop all day. Uh, 
so I shall be going out uh, pretty much as soon as we end this call to, to sample some of the local uh, culinary delights. Um, I believe there is a lovely food market around 10 minutes walk from my, uh, my hotel. So, yeah, um, looking forward to that. And uh, David, obviously for you, it's just about trying to get yourself back to full fitness, back to full health before these last two races of the year. Well, I hope to get myself back to full fitness before the Sepang test. <laughs> well, we'll obviously be pretty busy before the Sepang test. We've got these final two rounds, Qatar and Valencia. As I said, check out your podcast platform on Thursday for our Paddock Notes show. If you like what you hear, sign up to become a Paddock Insider on Patreon. As ever, big thanks to Renthal Street for supporting us on the Paddock Pass podcast. And we'll be back next week to break down the action from Qatar. Mm-hmm.